0: Welcome to the Sex Ed With DB podcast, brought to you by O-School. Sex Ed With DB is an intersectional, feminist, Bay Area based podcast for folks who want to hear real stories from underrepresented voices as we try to revolutionize the way we talk about sex.
1: Just talk about sex every single day.
0: I used to hump the shit out of everything. I think everybody does.
1: I'm like, if you'd like me to start procreating tough shit, because I'm
0: not gonna.
2: You can't have education, you can't have contraception, but you can't have an abortion. We're still on the the shit end of, of the stick for a lot of medical intervention that would make our bodies function better. And now it's all queer and all messy and all bodies and really great and fantastic.
0: Everyone gets a vibrator. I'm DB, AKA Danielle Bezalel, and I'll be your host. In today's episode, we'll be discussing the choice to be a parent later in life or to be child-free with our guests, Kristen Mancinelli and Ivy Chen. Kristen Mancinelli is Director of Education and Partnerships at Extend Fertility. She educates women about fertility and egg freezing, partners with organizations supporting women's reproductive health, and advocates for making female fertility a subject that isn't taboo. Ivy is back for another season. Ivy Chen is child-free by choice. She is also a sexuality health educator and has been working with Bay Area communities for 21 years. She teaches students ranging from the fourth grade through college age, as well as parent groups, community-based organizations, teachers, and other health professionals. The world can be a pretty sex-negative place society, religion, and culture, teaches us harmful beliefs about our bodies, sex, and pleasure. And we're here to help you unlearn them one by one. In O-School's sex-positive oasis, you can learn from experts in moderated live streams, explore pleasure, and interact with a diverse community of sex-positive people. Ain't no shame in our sex game. Visit www.o.school to experience an interactive hashtag sexyed session for yourself. Motherhood isn't for everyone, but if it's for you, maybe at some point, then think about freezing your eggs. Extend Fertility is a premier egg freezing practice dedicated to preserving your fertility options. Have questions? Schedule a call at www.extendfertility.com. And now... Here's my interview with Kristen. When we first like met and got together, like I just had no clue that like this was a thing and that this was becoming so popular. And, you know, we talked a little bit prior to this conversation and I feel like I was just kind of like mind blown about it because I feel <laughs> like in, well, first of all, we're not learning like any sex ed in schools. So like, yeah. that's number one. <laughs> but number two, like, we're definitely not learning about this. It's like, you know, I feel like this is like back to the future kind of stuff. Can you explain to me and to the listeners, how does egg retrieval and freezing work? So like, say I'm like Joe Schmo or Jane (laughs) Schmain. I visit your clinic. I visit Extend Fertility and like, what's the process? Absolutely. And I just want to take a moment first to address the education
2: issue because honestly, I'm, I was in the same boat as you. I have a master's in public health. You know, I've always been in the health field. And when I started at Extend Fertility, I learned things that I was just shocked that i never learned before you know i I just assumed like many of my peers that if you get older and and it's hard to become pregnant then you just turn to ivf and that's that's the fix for it you know but that's actually not true and the reason it's not true is because ivf is really only as good as the age of the egg that's being used in the in vitro fertilization and so and you see that from rates of ivf success for women using their own eggs at various ages you know under 35, between 35 and 40, up to 45, the success rates for IVF drop significantly as women age and use their own eggs, but they stay identical for women who use donor eggs from a younger woman. And so it just goes to show that the age of the egg has a real impact. And like, that's such a simple concept and something that's so important for people to understand if ultimately many people are going to turn to IVF and and don't really realize that, you know, if they don't freeze their eggs for future use the chance of success of that procedure is very low. So, you know, I mean, I just, I also, I'm just, I'm super shocked that this is what even myself as a healthcare professional believed until I came to work for an egg freezing clinic. Like I should have access to that information somewhere else.
0: (laughs) Totally, yeah. It shouldn't just be when you get a job there, definitely. Right,
2: or like when you try to get pregnant and it may be too late, Mm -hmm. you know, but um, to answer your question about how how the whole process works, egg freezing is something that women are, interested in. And as we've discussed, don't really have a lot of information about physicians aren't really proactively talking about it. And so when a woman contacts Extend Fertility, interested in maybe setting up a consultation, the first thing we do is schedule a phone call for her with a fertility advisor. And that person is really a health educator. They answer all of her questions. They explain what the process is like. And they do all that before the person has to come in for an appointment because it's a lot to come in for a doctor's appointment. And you may just want to understand sort of what the whole thing is about. So that phone call is really important. The next step would be to come in for a fertility assessment where they'll measure your ovarian reserve. So that's essentially your egg supply. And they do that in two ways. They take a blood test to measure a hormone called anti-malarian hormone or AMH for short. And they do a transvaginal ultrasound to look at the follicles growing in the ovaries. And they get what's called an antral follicle count. And then the next visit is a conversation with the physician. So, you know, that visit is really just, again, just a conversation. Like the woman doesn't have to do any exams there, but she learns the results of that test, the fertility assessment, and talks about her goals for family planning, which is so important. You know, I think women who are coming to freeze their eggs or exploring it really need to do some self-reflection and understand, like, what am I looking to get up this process? And that's going to make the conversation with the physician much more valuable the physician will tell her, you know, based on the results of her test and, and her goals, whether they think egg freezing is right for her. And if so, you know, round about how many eggs she might want to shoot for to get the chance of pregnancy. That's important to her. Um, People really vary in terms of what their goals are. Some people know they're going to go to medical school or they're going to do something and they don't want to have a family until later, but they're certain they want to have two kids or three kids. Other people, they're just not sure what they want. They don't even know if they want to have children, but they want to preserve the option. So People vary Mm -hmm. on that spectrum. And, you know, after the consultation, it's really up to the woman to decide
0: if she thinks this is something she wants to pursue. Women in America are waiting longer and longer to have children. According to a 2016 study from the Center for Disease Control, for the first time ever, more children are being born to women in their 30s than women in their 20s, while the average age of a first-time mom is 28.
2: If she does, she'll come in for another visit where she will learn how to give herself hormone injections, which is part of the process. So the nurse mm-hmm. will teach her the administration of the medication and everyone, you know, is pretty freaked out about that in the beginning. But ultimately what happens is like after the first or second shot, the women say like, you know, I didn't think I could do it, but it's really not that bad. And so um, mm-hmm. it ends up being okay. After that visit where she comes in, she'll look at a calendar. She'll plan out her cycle. She'll learn about the medications. She signs consent forms, et cetera. Then the next part is the, the start of the egg freezing cycle. So that starts on day two of the woman's period. So when she gets her period, she'll call us. We'll tell her to come in the next day. And then she starts her first of the first of some monitoring visits. Monitoring means we're looking at the levels of hormones and the growth of the follicles on the ovaries and during her egg freezing cycle, which is a little shorter than two weeks, she'll have to come in roughly every other day. So she'll give herself hormone injections for somewhere between eight to eleven days. And every other day she'll come in briefly in the morning to take a blood test and do an ultrasound. So it's maybe five to seven office visits during that time. And And what's when, the purpose? What's the purpose of the of the hormones? What does that do? So the hormones are follicle-stimulating hormone and luteinizing hormone, and they're the same hormones that your that your brain produces during your cycle, and they cause the eggs to mature. But your body is programmed to mature only one egg, and that's why we ovulate only one mature egg every month. But actually, fascinatingly, many hundreds of eggs are growing in your ovaries at that time, and one of them becomes the mature egg, but if you give more of those hormones, many of them can become a mature egg. And so that's what we're doing in the egg freezing process. We want to mature a group of them, 10 or 20 or more of them, so that you can Because then you go in and grab them and then freeze them.
0: Precisely. Precisely. Got it. Okay. Okay, keep going. Sorry. I'm just really, I'm interested. I'm I'm going to ask questions. It's important. So at the end
2: of the period where she's giving herself hormones, um, she'll come in for her retrieval procedure. So that is when the eggs have grown to the right size. She's ready for the procedure. It's a really brief, it's actually only 10 to 15 minutes. Um, She'll be under anesthesia, so she won't feel anything. And they insert a needle through the vaginal wall into the ovary and extract the eggs that way. So there's no cutting, and no stitches.
0: Oh, it's through the vagina. Yeah. Whoa. Okay.
2: Yeah. And then like within an hour, she'll go home. Usually we recommend people take that day off because they've had anesthesia and, um just stay home and rest and that's the end of it so that whole part from the first monitoring visit to the retrieval is roughly 2 weeks you know so women ask how long does it take i mean that that intense part of it where you're coming in for the different monitoring visits and you're giving yourself the hormone injections that's a 2 week process prior to that the consultation the fertility assessment you know you can sort of do those on your own time
0: got it okay cool so let's get into like what are the demographics of your patients on average like who's coming in why are they choosing to come in? I'm sure, you know, there's all different kinds of reasons, but for people listening, you know, this episode is all about like different ways to live your life just as a, as a woman and as a person. So like, what are these people coming in and telling you all? Like what, who are they? Yeah. I mean, it is
2: so important to talk about this. And I'm really
0: grateful that you, you chose
2: to add this into this particular. You know, episode on not assuming motherhood because so many women come to us and they say like, I I don't even know if I want kids. I'm not even in the place yet where I would have them if I wanted them. But I, I recognize that time is a real issue for me. You know, the biology just sort of isn't on my side and I, and I'm not sure what to do. So I want to preserve my options for the future. You know, that is far and away the most common theme. The women who come in, you know, really range in age anywhere from even early 20s, all the way to early 40s. The younger women, women under 25, tend to be there because they have a medical reason. So women who might undergo chemotherapy, can that can jeopardize their fertility. So they would have to freeze their eggs before that if they wanted to preserve that option. Women who are going to undergo gender reassignment surgery and transition will come in um, at a younger age. I mean, I feel like a majority fall into three categories. One is they're big planners and they really have a plan for some sort of trajectory of their life. You know, they might be devoting a lot of time to school or um, what have you. And they, they just are sort of, I, f- I call them like those people who have like their 401k all already sort of on lock. You know? <laughs> like they've got it all together and they're like, this is a smart thing. So I'm also going to freeze my egg. Then there are women who have an, a friend or, you know, a sibling who's struggling to get pregnant and going through fertility treatments and that person will say to her trust me like it you would be smart to be proactive about this and you know freeze your eggs like you don't want to end up in that situation that I'm in and then other women often will say you know they've just gotten out of a relationship that they thought was going to lead to parenthood and it ends and they realize you know they're a little older than they thought they wanted to be etc and so so those are things that tend to prompt women. I mean, there are other reasons, of course, Um, but those are common, common reasons why women come in.
0: What does this cost? Like, can you, t- can you speak to like, you know, young people, like for me, like I'll speak for myself. I'm 25. I like know for sure that I want to have a family someday in the next five years, like probably not. So like, I think this would yeah. be a really interesting thing for me as someone to even think about like. I also don't make that much money. So it's like, how can yep. a, a young person who wants to have a family someday and like, you know, work for a couple of years and save more, um, how could they afford something like this? It's super important to talk about cost, but it's also important to talk
2: about what you value. And, you know, I think for myself, I mean, you know, I've talked about this. I went to graduate school, that was over a hundred thousand dollars that I spent, you know, and that was because I really valued that and I wanted my education and I was willing to you know, go into debt for it. And, you know, some women who who come into extended fertility, they say like, oh, I've thought about this, but I was putting it off and putting it off because it's like all in with the medications and everything. It was going to be like something over $10,000. And, you know, I, I didn't know that I want to spend $10,000, but then I thought like, wow, having a family is one of the most important things to me. And I spent the same woman said she spent over a hundred thousand on her education. So, This made sense to her, you know? Um, right. Other people, I mean, some people have help from their parents. You know, it's something that some folks have given as like a graduation gift to their daughter when they graduate college. (laughs) That's awesome. So in terms of the cost, um, I'm going to break it down. There are three costs involved in freezing your eggs. There's the medical care provided by the practice. There are the medications, which you must purchase from a pharmacy. And then there is the long-term storage of your frozen eggs, which is typically a yearly cost for however long you want to keep them frozen. Um, So average cost for the medical care for one egg freezing cycle nationwide is $11,000. And that is before the medications. At Extend Fertility, our cost for one egg freezing cycle is $4,750. So it's less than half of the average. So when we talk about the, the cost of it, you have to sort of think about where are you? What clinic are you going to? Some of them will cost less than 11,000. Some will cost more. So you really have to look into it. And then the medications, the medications range in cost from $2,000 to $5,000. The reason for that is that women need different amounts of medication. People's bodies respond differently. So, you know, there's, there's a range and it's hard to say what it will be. And then the long-term storage average is something between $800 and $1,000 a year. At Extend Fertility, is $450 a year. So if we look at someone coming to our clinic and doing one egg freezing cycle, average medication cost, and then, you know, let's say three years of storage, three years of storage is less than $1,500. And then you add that to the $4,750. So we're talking what, uh, $65, right? Am I right? And then $3,000. Mm-hmm. So $9,000 altogether. If you go to the mm-hmm. average place nationwide, you're going to be talking sixteen thousand, seventeen thousand dollars altogether.
0: So, say like Jane Schmain goes in at twenty five, does the egg egg retrieval process, the two weeks of hormones, pays every year for five years to um to keep it in your storage space. Then what? So like after like when Jane Schmaine is thirty and like wants to go back to your clinic and like actually put get that egg put back inside of them like what happens next so when she does want to use her eggs extend fertility has
2: a sister practice that performs ivf and infertility services so you know she could come back and use her eggs with us if she wanted to a lot of people they say you know i'm gonna move or i'm from abroad or i live in texas and i was just here doing the egg freezing cycle etc so they can be transferred to whatever lab or uh, practice the woman wants to go through IVF at. And then the process there is um, relative to the two weeks of giving yourself hormone injections and all that, it's actually quite a bit easier. Um There are medications, but far fewer medications. And, you know, the insertion of the embryo in the implantation, it's called, is a similar procedure to the retrieval procedure. So they use a catheter, they go into the cervix, and they sort of just like shoot the embryo into the uterine <laughs> cavity <laughs> and, you know, like a cannon it its way. <laughs> that's really it but um you know the i think for most women the challenge is finding the sperm <laughs> like what sperm they want to yeah <laughs> you know all of this is so crazy because there's such controversy i think around egg freezing and so many people say like oh it's you know misplacing attention that should really be on supporting, you know, maternity leave policies and different things like that and supporting women to become mothers. But the fact of the matter is like women can make their own choices. And if a woman's not ready to be a mother, then maternity leave policy is not really going to benefit her. And so, you know, if she's interested in freezing her eggs, then she should have access to that information through her healthcare plan. It does boggle my mind because we've been freezing sperm for decades, you know, with no controversy at all. And And men who are going to undergo chemo or, you know, some sort of treatment that might damage their fertility or, or are encouraged to freeze their sperm. Whereas it's still mm-hmm. rare that women are, are told that they should consider doing an egg freezing cycle before they undergo treatment.
0: What do you think about the idea that like all these Silicon Valley companies like Google and Apple, and they all are like now starting to have like egg freezing health care benefits of like, they'll pay for your egg freezing. Part of me like feels like that's nice. And then the other part of me is like, yeah, but you just want me to work harder for you <laughs> in my like young years. Like, what do you think about that?
2: Yeah, it's so funny because you articulated like both sides of the mainstream argument. And um it took me a while to come around to seeing that side, the side that says like, it's somehow like an evil, evil corporation thing, you know, because <laughs> my initial feeling about it was, first of all, coming on to work at Extend Fertility and having many of my friends say, like, I didn't know anything about this. And thankfully you work there now, so I can ask you. But like, no one gave me any information about this. My doctor never talked to me about age related infertility. And, you know, now I'm 38. So like, someone should have said something, you know, so mm-hmm. coming from that perspective of women, like, a wanting access to information be wanting some support for the cost, you know, I thought it was a great thing. You know, I thought, well, great, cool. Some of these companies are providing these benefits. But of course, if you look at the media attention that those, those companies got, it tended to lean toward exactly what you said, you know, oh, this is really sort of somehow a negative thing because it's implying that, you know, I should put off motherhood. And, I, there was a moment, I'll be completely honest. I got extremely angry about that because it made me feel like it's almost like a, I don't know if paternalistic is the right word, but it's sort of like, well, we shouldn't give women access to this option because somehow like they can't make up their own choices and actually, you know, we gotta protect them from like this sort of notion or the impression or whatever it is, you know? So I felt really angry about it, but then, you know. Of course, this trying to be mature person came around and said, "Okay, I understand how some people can have this impression. But really, the bottom line for me is, you know, if a woman wants to freeze her eggs, then it's a great thing if her company is willing to support, somehow support and subsidize the cost. It is costly. And I don't see why, you know, why we wouldn't want to do that. My understanding from talking to some people in the industry is that the reason those companies have done that is because their employees asked for it. You know, so Mm. it's not like they come out of nowhere with this idea, you know, but I mean, HR benefits, you know, they're going to put in place benefits that their employees want. And only something like 4% of companies nationwide provide egg freezing benefits. And yet there has been some data that demonstrates that people are more loyal to companies that are going to provide for their benefits, for their benefit needs in this realm. You know, Mm. so ultimately a woman who doesn't want to become pregnant, she can't. she's not gonna use benefits that are related to motherhood and pregnancy. Maybe she wants to use the egg freezing benefit. I, I really think it really comes down to personal choice and, and not not restricting choice because you think that somehow people aren't going to be able to make up their own minds, women specifically.
0: And now, here's my interview with Ivy. For people who are listening, specifically like women identifying people, people with uteruses, like... For people who have no, these people who have no interest maybe in having kids in the future, what are some various medical procedures or contraceptive options that a
1: person with a uterus or a woman could use to ensure that they would not get pregnant in the future? So there are lots of options that we have now, right? So keep in mind the birth control pill, which was the first female controlled contraception, it was a game changer, right? So it's about 60 years old now. And when it came out, it made it so that females could actually have intercourse and it works about 99.7% of the time with perfect use, Uh, but not for everybody. Right. But it has to do with remembering to take it at the same time every day, but it made it so that people can have sex for, uh, pleasure for recreational purposes and, and not have to worry too much and also not have to negotiate condom use with a male partner. Because back then those were the main options other than say a diaphragm, which is actually much less effective than the, um, birth control pill. But of course, since then there are a number of other hormonal birth control, including actually long-term birth control, such as the, um, there's a little, uh, implant thing called implanton that goes under the skin in the arm. And that works for about three years. And then there's also an intrauterine device and they're back. Okay. Right. Including even for young women And so they can be long lasting up to 10 years and the one that actually has hormones work up to five years and Sure is actually a method of tubal ligation They look like these little coils wrapped around the surgical grade plastic and what a doctor would do is Insert it up into the females fallopian tubes and over uh, I think a couple of months scar tissue would eventually grow around that so Essentially, it's tubal ligation without having to cut. It's not really possible to remove them though. Now, generally tying the tubes, right, is going to be an option that's going to be chosen by females who've already had children, but they could be done with their, uh, their baby making, right? You know, by the time that they're in their thirties and they might be looking at maybe up to two more decades of being able to get pregnant, but they don't really want to. Now I got to tell you, in those cases. What I think is the best option is the male partner having a vasectomy. (laughs) All right, and And it's actually pretty easy, you know, compared to tubal ligation, which is major abdominal surgery. uh, A vasectomy is an outpatient procedure. And when I used to work at Planned Parenthood, I've actually seen a couple of those done and it's pretty quick. You know, the guy is like totally awake. They do numb the area of course, but it's actually really effective, pretty low cost as well as also, um, safer than a tubal ligation. But you know what? There are actually a couple of new male birth controls that are coming out, including one I'm excited about. It's called vasil gel. It's actually a gel that's injected and it forms a solid polymer and you can it putting in a second injection, but if left there, it can work for up to 10 years. And so, yeah, essentially it's like a vasectomy without the cutting and it doesn't have to be permanent. So it's a reversible method. It's just wonderful. Right? So uh, we'll see. Okay. When it becomes available, there are going to be other options for males, including a different injection that inactivates the sperm as they pass through, as well as perhaps, you know, you might've been hearing in the the news, the male birth control pill, it won't actually be a pill, it'll be an injection and it's in clinical trials right now and they're working through all the side effects. But I think the next wave of birth control are going to be the male birth controls. Uh, and of course there are going to be, um, long-term methods for females too. And those have been around for a while. And I got to tell you a quick story. One of my college students at SF state, she had shared with me that when we did the contraception lecture that she knew ever since she was a kid that she didn't want kids. And when she turned 18, she went to her doctor and said, doctor, I want you to tie my tubes. And her doctor refused because, uh, her doctor said, you know, I think you're going to change your mind. Right? So it's a little Ah. bit paternalistic. It's like, you don't really know what you want, you know? No, just just wait, okay? You know, and quite honestly, even as... Um, I was going through my twenties and thirties and, you know, when I was sharing with people, you know, I don't think I want kids. They're like, you will change your mind. Just oh, wait. Right. And they always give you these arbitrary ages. Wait till you're 30. Wait till you're 32, right? Wait till you settle down. Oh, someday, right? Your uterus will just be like, Bing, I want a baby. And you know, that never happened. Yeah. And I mean, with me anyways, the way that it worked was that I would look at puppies and be like, oh, <laughs> I want a puppy. I I want that puppy, you know, and not, never felt that way about human babies, but nonetheless. Okay. So the thing is that with this particular student, she, um, then tried again at 21. Okay. And that's when she got a doctor to agree. And she said, look, I haven't changed my mind. I am very, very sure of this. And even though at 18, she was legally an adult, she really wasn't able to do that. Right. And so it's kind of interesting how, um, also in the past, you know, certain populations were sometimes, um, like unknowingly forcibly sterilized too, right. In the age of eugenics, you know, where in particular, uh, like women of color or actually women who were, uh, who had a mental disability were sterilized against their will as well. So, I mean, this, I mean, it's, it's got, it's got such an interesting history, you know, and a lot of abuses as well.
0: as you said, you know, it's like a very sensitive topic because it is something that happened, like, not exclusively, but predominantly to women of color and women who did have, you know, mental disabilities. And that's just like, that. that's not even talked about enough. We could have an entire episode just based on that. Back to women identifying people who choose not to have kids. What are some common stereotypes about uh, women if they don't have kids or don't want to have kids and where do they come from?
1: Well, I'll start with a, a second question, which is that historically women had kids because there wasn't really much of another option of what you do as an adult female, right? In fact, actually, I was talking about this in my class that, you know, the terms that you call a single woman, an old maid or a spinster, those are actually, Job titles, right? Because, you know, a person would have to work as somebody's maid or work the spinning wheel in order to support themselves if they didn't have a husband. But most of the time, the implication is that she wasn't chosen to be somebody's wife. Like it wasn't her choice to be a working woman, right? And so, therefore, actually, you'd think, oh, the lucky women were the ones who actually got to be wives and mothers. And so first that was idealized, you know, as well as then, uh, it was, it was something that was shown in the media as, you know, this kind of angelic stay at home mom, you know, and often very self-sacrificing, like, you know, putting her kids and her husband first, because of course heterosexual um, families, nuclear families were all we also uh, saw on television for the longest time. And so, as you were saying earlier, representation and portrayals of the norm, you know, that establishes what people think they're, Supposed to do and it also affects the choices that they think they have and so therefore if everybody if every female is expected to be a mom and then you're not and That it wasn't because it wasn't something that was that wasn't under your control, you know, like like infertility but instead that that's what you chose then they immediately get suspicious. They're like, so... So it's it's almost like the same sets of questions that people ask somebody who's gay. It's like, so when did you know you were gay? Or you know, ra- rather than asking people who are straight, and when did you know you were straight? You know, like nobody questions the majority or the, or the established norm. And so in that case, you know, then they're like, well, I don't understand. it. And I think that actually people get very scared and threatened by something different and something that they didn't understand, particularly since most of us grew up in families with parents, of course, since they had us, right? Chosen or not, right? And we don't know the history of some of that either, but still what happens is that they are having to kind of invent their own script (laughs) for the person who's making that option to be childless by choice. It's liberating and it can also be a little scary, right? You know, but for the person, who has kind of gone the more mainstream route, it will make you different from that person, including actually with some of my friends who have decided to be moms. And most of my friends and most of my family have. I am out of my main first cousins, the only one who hasn't had a baby. And the most recent one had one just last year, right? And so it's like, well, that's everybody else there, you know? And so I'm kind of a standout. And so as a result, you know, people are like, so, why not, you right. know? And so the stereotypes would often be, well, a lot of times is speculative, right? It's like, oh, maybe they are dealing with infertility or mm-hmm. well, maybe they are working a lot, which kind of, you know, means like, oh, she's a workaholic or she's, I don't know, hates children. And that's not the case at all in most cases. In fact, many of my friends who work in the classrooms, whose classes I teach puberty at in, and some of them I've known for almost the 20 years that I've been teaching, uh, you know, they say, you know, I'm with 30 kids all day long and you, you're a teacher, but you also play a parental role. And so I'm good, you know, like I got my fill, I'm going to go home now to my quiet apartment and my quiet house, you know, and uh, not be with kids for a while, you know, and to have that balance in their life. And I totally appreciate that. So generally that stereotype of, oh, you must hate children. That's why you don't have any. That's usually not true or that they think, oh, it must be because you're immature, or you're selfish or something like that. Mm. And that's usually not true either. Yes.
0: Can you talk about, like, in your experience of hearing about this from being in certain jobs or just, like, hearing from friends um, who have kids, like, the difference in America particularly, um, or even in the Bay particularly, in SF, in Oakland, in Berkeley, um, between maternity and paternity leave and just, like, the lack of it (laughs) um, specifically for women?
1: So federally, there's not really a law that says you have to have paid maternity leave. And there's not necessarily a law that says that you're guaranteed to get your job back when you come back. And so, I I mean, I would say that San Francisco as a city tends to be pretty progressive about that in California as a state does as well. So I believe we do have paid maternity leave as well as paid paternity leave. And so actually what's cooler is that they just say paid parent leave, right? Yeah. So par- parental leave, rather than have to die, uh, to have to put a title of, um, the, the parent and the gender of the parent on that as well. And so that's good, right? And yeah. so, so that's, I actually, it doesn't just even apply to having biological children. It can also apply to if you adopt a child, too, you are eligible for parental leave in order to stay home for a number of weeks.
0: Parental leave laws are confusing. So here's the deal. Nationwide, the Family Medical Leave Act, or FMLA, guarantees employees 12 weeks off to care for a new baby, including adopted children, or to take care of a seriously ill family member, such as a child, spouse, or parent. But here's the kicker. The leave guaranteed by the FMLA is unpaid. States and cities have supplemented this federal leave by allowing for more time off, but that time off doesn't pay the bills.
1: And it may depend on who your employer is as well, right? And so I think that whenever people feel like, well, I have rights, you know, that they can be very tenuous, right? And to make sure that we always fight to keep those rights and to, to work towards having more and to, to really value that. But I think that in the past, the message had been that if the mother, right, the person who had the baby would get maternity leave, but then her partner couldn't, that it again already implies that the responsibility is with her to take care of the baby. And uh, so I, I think that it's good that we're recognizing that we really have to, as a society, value the family unit and to allow them to bond in their first days as a new family, and that it's hard to be a parent and to not just even say, oh, well, at least there's two of you taking care of the baby, but to really be able to provide as much support as possible.
0: If you didn't know, we have it pretty good here in the Bay Area. California's paid family leave policy guarantees employees six weeks of partial pay to either bond with a new child, including adopted children, or to take care of a seriously ill family member. In San Francisco, the city's supplemental compensation program pays the difference between partial pay guaranteed by the state and your full salary. So what does this mean? This means that taking time off won't break the bank.
1: So one of my cousins, the one who recently had a baby, she actually had moved to France and she said, oh, let me tell you, the maternity care and just
0: months 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 and months, yeah.
1: And also you, you get more support from the government. Like, you know, you can have somebody who kind of checks in on you, who, you know, and, and who, who will, um, you know, and often we call that a doula here in this country. Right. But who will basically do uh, basic things around your house. Like, can I clean this, cook something for you, do the laundry, hold your baby while you take a shower, you know, so really basic things like that. So I feel like that uh, parenting is hard in our culture because we're expected to be so independent that we should be able to do it all.
0: Yeah. I want to know more personal stuff about like, at what ages did you feel certain pressures to have kids? And like, when did you know you didn't want them? And when, and like, how have you had to like defend yourself to t- to tell people like, and can you talk a little bit about like your dog and like how that's kind of
1: your like little dog baby? I would love to talk about my talk. I could talk about Biscuit all day long. But let's actually start with uh, pressures, okay? I felt like, quite honestly, my family has been awesome about it. Because I feel like that a lot of parents will do the whole, you know, you're getting to be this age, shouldn't you be settling down? Are you involved with anybody seriously? You know, tick and clock, tick, 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 you know? So my family has never actually done any of that to me, which I'm very, very grateful for. And so I do feel like like that I was very supported for whatever decisions I had. I think actually as a kid, um, you know, you grow up with the whole, um, uh, love, marriage, and baby carriage expectations. And uh, you just assume that you would. I think for the longest time, I thought, oh, sure, someday, right? When I'm a grown a up, yeah, totally, right? As a kid, even as a high school or a college undergrad, I would think, oh, sure, someday I'm going to grow up and then, you know, get married and then have two kids. And because uh, that's what you're supposed to do, you know? And then when I started teaching kids myself, And I was in the classroom all day with kids. I'm like, you know, I love teaching kids. And I also don't need to have my own, you know, and I also started talking to more, more friends and teachers who they themselves have actually made that decision too, you know? And so I think that actually hearing other people who have made that choice kind of strengthened your resolve and feeling like it's a legitimate choice. And so that's part of it. And I, you know, I think even after I turned 30 or even 40, I really, I was very lucky to not actually feel pressure. And I think particularly in the culture that I come from, where, especially I told you We were just in Chinese New Year and, you know, you have all these blessings, right? And actually fertility and having tons of kids, you know, is actually one of those like, you know, Chinese blessings, right? Especially sons. Okay. But still, you know, so I felt very lucky to not actually have uh, those kinds of pressures. And I think probably by about 28 or 30, I was pretty sure that I didn't want to have kids. And so I think that developmentally, what happens when you enter your 30s is that you've completed that phase in your life where you've worked on yourself. You've figured out your identity. Uh, You do that in your teens and your 20s. You know what you want. You know who you are now. And you're ready to now kind of reach outside of yourself to to take care of something else. Now, in some cases, that is a um, cause, okay? Like a social justice kind of a cause. In other cases, it might be, Human children, and in other cases, it might be a pet, and in my case, it's Biscuit, right? And so, and all the other kids that I teach. And I gotta tell you, you know, we were talking about do you get any pressure? And I would actually say that whenever I teach, especially fifth graders, we do the anonymous question box. Mostly they're asking questions about periods and sperms and pubes and things like that. But sometimes they'll ask a personal question. They're like, do you have kids? Right. And so they're 10 and 11. And so I'm not going to hold it against them and be like, that's none of your business, you know, because they're asking... Innocently, you know, they, they want to know more about me. And I'm like, well, I'm flattered. You want to know? And what I tell them is, you know what? I don't have biological children, but like many of your teachers, I feel you guys are my kids too. Right. And this is why I'm leaving you my email address. We can stay in touch. You can ask me questions even just through email, but you know, I care about you, you know, mm-hmm. and I feel invested in, especially this part of your life, you know, about your, your sexual and puberty development and making. Right that you're healthy and making good decisions too. So it's not like I don't have human kids and therefore I'm not responsible for any kids. That's not true. So for most people having um, close family kids, nephews, nieces, best friends, kids, you know, you can be somebody's auntie or uncle, whether it's blood related or not. So I think one of the best reasons to not have your own kids is because there are so many other kids, you know, who can use your love and attention and care. Has your decision to be child-free
0: had any impact on your romantic relationships? And can you talk about, like, knowing from, you know, when, when you were a teacher, you said you really, like, kind of solidified this idea that you didn't want kids. Like, how do you express that? to a partner who, you know, maybe you want to be a life partner with, but maybe you don't know if they want
1: kids or you're dating. And that's kind of like a a non, you know, a non-negotiable for you. You know, I was actually talking about this in my SF State class because we were saying, you know... You could just be watching TV, right? And, you know, you're dating a new person. Things are going great. And you think you're just making small talk. You're like, oh, well, wouldn't Aria be a really good girl's name? Don't you think? (laughs) You know? And they're like, um, I guess, sure. (laughs) And they're like, like, for a baby? And they'd be like well, I actually don't want kids. And maybe that was never something that you had discussed yet. Yeah, it never came up, right? Or that you assume, well, we'll see, you know, if this relationship goes well, maybe we'll settle down. And then you start to imagine what your kids might look like, right? Exactly. You know, you, you blend your looks together and you already gave them names, you know, and all of a sudden you find out that your partner doesn't want kids. And that could be a big blow because, you know, you might have thought I thought I would, but maybe, maybe I'm flexible with that. Or maybe you decide, oh, wow, this really solidifies my choice to have children. And that means I can't stay with you. And the worst is when you stay with the partner anyways, and you're like, I'll change their mind. (laughs) They'll change, right? If they love me, they'll change. And it's like, no, 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 don't do that. Don't do that. Okay. So, and you don't want anybody to unwillingly go into parenting. That's for sure. But you know, it's one of those things you do hear stories where, uh, people say, well, it's different when it's yours. And sometimes it might be, and sometimes it might not be, but you certainly want to be really open about communicating with this. And so, uh, I'm, and honestly, I've been with the same partner, uh, for 16 years. And that's been since I had made a decision that I didn't want to have kids. And, uh, you know, and I communicated that to him kind of early in the relationship. And, uh, I think he had been flexible you know, with that. And also he dotes on biscuit too, right? You know, and so uh, I think that we, um, you know, I mean, I, I would say that it's it's mainly led by my decision, you know, and I feel like that in some cases, um, when it comes to reproduction, the, f- the female partner in a heterosexual relationship has a little bit more power in that. I mean, what can I say, right? Because we're the ones that would actually have the baby or not have the baby. So, right. So, I mean, so I'm grateful, you know, that we are in agreement with this and that he is, um, happy with the other aspects of our relationship. And, you know, it's just one of those things where when you hear about stories of people who are child-free or childless by choice that, you know, they say, you know, it's not because, you know, I, I just feel like my life is really fulfilling without children. I'm happy without kids. And I don't think having kids would make me happier and not having kids would make me less happy. So it really is a choice, you know, and also even the term, because I've used both, right? Child-free and childless by choice. I think that childless, the way that we discuss anything, the way we use language, convey our values. And so when you say that something is less like, oh, they're heartless. Okay. Right. That it means you're deficient in something, whereas child-free, you know, is uh, often going to convey that it was uh, their option and that it liberates you from something. So I really think that that does convey a different attitude about it too.
0: Sex Ed with DB is brought to you by O School, a place to unlearn shame, explore pleasure, and interact with a diverse community of sex positive folks through daily live streams. Forget sex ed. Our hashtag SexyEd is far more satisfying. Go to www.odotschool to learn more. Our creator, host, and producer is me, Danielle Bezalel, aka DB. Our content editor is Katherine Cohen. Our graphic illustrator is Carissa Diaz. Our audio engineer is Katie McMurrin. Our social media lead is Lisa Fireman. And our fundraising coordinator is Carly Yoshida. Music by Joaquin Karud and the artist Buddha. Thank you to our featured voices and our listeners. Tune in next time.